Crossway Church Sermon Audio. Throughout history, the book of Genesis has served mankind by giving us the Lord's answers to the, the two great questions of life. Who are we? That's the question of identity. And why are we here? That's the question of purpose. And in our day, the answer to those questions seems especially pertinent and powerful because the confusion around those questions all around us runs so very deep. The world around us is in the middle of a vast and in some ways unprecedented experiment at self-creation and self-definition, and it's not going well. It, it can't go well. But Genesis is like a beautiful piece of music with clear notes ringing out and stirring the soul, beckoning us to listen and enjoy and learn. If we think of the first 11 chapters of Genesis like a symphony, then we can identify four movements within it so far. The first movement is creation, when the eternal and self-existent God spoke all things into existence according to his good and wise design. Over six days, that music built until it crescendoed at the end of the sixth day with the creation of man, male and female. In this first movement was joy and goodness and beauty and every flourishing and life-filled thing. The second movement in Genesis is the fall. As the enemy enters the garden, the, the sacred confines of the garden, and, and a minor key of dissonance rings out as an interpreter other than God is heard for the first time. And tragically, he's not just heard, but he's also heeded as Eve and then Adam partook of the fruit and plunged mankind and, and the whole of creation into ruin. And in this second movement was conflict and abuse and violence and murder and every wicked thing. The third movement is the flood, the great judgment of God as the wickedness of man was great and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. We saw that movement last week as the Lord opened the fountains of the deep and he opened the windows of the heavens to reintroduce chaos upon the earth, undoing that first creation and blotting out all life. You might think of the flood as the pounding of a mighty timpani, those enormous kettlebells that seem to shake the earth with their ominous and foreboding notes. And this third movement was wrath. But we also saw the faithfulness of Noah, which together led us to see the mercy of God. The fourth movement in Genesis 1 to 11 begins with our passage this morning. Genesis 9 is the start of this present age of the earth. This is life as we know it, life after the judgment of the flood. The paradise of Eden is very foreign to us. It's hard for us to imagine what that was like. And even life before the flood is foreign with people living for century after century. It's quite strange. But after the flood, when the life of man is limited to 120 years and the world is a mixture of both good and evil, that's life that we're familiar with, the, the life we've been born into. This movement, this fourth movement, is more like the soundtrack of our day-to-day -day lives. But in pulling together the four notes of these movements, we can start to make sense of our lives and to answer these two questions. Who are we and why are we here? 
I think we know the answer to those questions instinctively on some level. But today we're going to see how those two questions are answered in this fourth movement of life after judgment. As Noah and his family have passed through the waters of the judgment of the flood, they've emerged into a world washed new. The Lord is going to speak blessing to them, and he's going to give them his instructions. He's going to orient them to himself and to his purposes for mankind in the world. And I wonder if you noticed as we read the passage, as we read those 17 verses, there, there are five characters mentioned, but there's only one who speaks. We see Noah, we see his three sons, but it's only the Lord who speaks. He's really the only actor in this passage. His, his voice alone rings out. And as we listen and pay attention to what he's saying, these instructions that he's giving to Noah and his sons are the same message that he has for us this morning. We're being called to listen to the Lord to find life. Listen to the Lord to find life. And we're going to consider two aspects of the Lord's instructions for how to live. The first is abundant life under God's instruction. At the end of last week's passage in Genesis 8, we saw Noah's response to surviving the flood. He exited the ark, he immediately built an an altar, he offered sacrifices to the Lord and in a response to this mercy, this incredible mercy that he just received. And we we read that the Lord was pleased by this offering. We, We could say that Noah blessed the Lord, that's how we bless the Lord. And then the Lord made a promise to Noah to not destroy the earth again by the flood, but instead that he would make sure that human beings live to the, the very end of the world. He says, as long as the earth endures, these creatures will live. That's an announcement of his mercy. Today's passage then is the Lord accomplishing what he announced last week. And in these first seven verses, we're going to find seven truths about God and how he gives life, seven applications and implications of his role as the source and sustainer of all life. So in verse one, the Lord begins by blessing Noah and his sons. And so the first thing we learn about God in his life giving is that the Lord blesses his people. He's a good father. His purposes are always good. Consider, he has no illusions about these men. He knows their sinful hearts, right? Next week, Peter's going to show us what's basically the second fall of Noah and Ham especially. The Lord knows their hearts and still he blesses them, which shows us again what we see all throughout Scripture, that all of the good that we receive in this life ultimately comes down to one factor, and that's the self-determining loving kindness of God. We are blessed because God is good, not because we are good. Every good thing in your life, every good thing, if you look around, if you consider for a moment, every good thing that you have comes from God and it comes as an undeserving act of sheer grace. The Lord blesses his people. He also then gives them instructions. The instruction here is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And if you look at verse 1 and you look at verse 7, you'll see how that command bookends that whole passage. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. First and last in that passage. That's the, the whole thrust, the whole theme. And so we learn two more things about the Lord in these instructions. Uh, the second thing on our list is that he is the God who speaks. 
He reveals himself to us. So we don't have to wonder, what, what is God's will? What does God want for me? We don't need to wonder, why are we here? The Lord has spoken. This book right here is God's revealed will for your life. You don't have to wonder. It's not hidden. It's not far away. It's not obscure. You don't need some, some secret knowledge, some secret key to unlock it. The Lord speaks. He reveals. He takes the initiative to be known in his word. <clears throat> the word of God is plain and it's clear. It's not perfectly simple, right? Peter even says some of Paul's writings are hard to understand. But the main message of Scripture is plain and it's clear, and we have the promise of God that as we sit under his word, the spirit of God will lead us into his truth. And so we need to have that confidence. We also learn third, that God's purposes for creation still stand. And so that command to be fruitful and multiply is lifted word for word from the Garden of Eden. It's that 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 command that he gave first to Adam and Eve is repeated exactly here and it endures to the present. So the Lord intends for his image bearers to cover the earth and, and to bring him glory from every corner of the earth. That command never stopped. Even when Jesus gave the great commission to his disciples to go and preach the gospel to all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to obey all that he commanded, it was with this end in view. Christianity has spread around the globe because it applies to every person created in the image of God. The Lord intends for every person in every place to live every day for his glory. As Isaiah prophesied, the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. But then we see a change in what theologians call the post-diluvian world, the, the deluge after the flood. In the garden, the command after be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth was to subdue the earth and to exercise, to have dominion over it. But that phrase is not repeated here. Instead, the Lord says that the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast and bird and creeping thing and fish. Into your hand they are delivered. So the language has changed. The the language of hand is signifying power and authority. So the Lord is again giving humans power and authority over the animals. So that command to exercise dominion is still in force, but the context is different. In the garden, we would have ruled with love and with joy and without conflict, without violence, without struggle. But this is the language of the fallen world. It's fear and dread. All that we know is struggle. To work and to keep is to labor and to toil. It's difficult. I mowed my yard yesterday and was overwhelmed at the number of weeds (laughs) that are in our flower beds. And we just weeded, right? It's constant, it's toil, it's labor, it's struggle. This is life in the fallen world. We also learn, fourth, that God calls us to work redemptively. And we see that in that language of the Lord placing fear and dread on the animals. He's placing them under our authority. That's a mercy to us because he's keeping predators away from mankind for the most part. Just think if the lions and tigers and bears had no restraint towards humans and just attacked relentlessly. But it also points to our call and our ability to domesticate animals for things like farming. 
in a fallen world where evil and violence are real, the ability of mankind to still exercise dominion is a redemptive work. We're called to fill the earth, and then we're called to build and develop the earth for God's glory, even in the midst of hardship and fallenness. So what you do every day in the roles and the responsibilities that the Lord has assigned to you matters tremendously. The work that God has given you to do in the relationships and the roles and the responsibilities that he's entrusted to you, what you do matters. And as you do those things in faith, uh, usually as an act of love for your neighbor, you glorify your father. Those are good works. And it's not just coming to church. It's not just reading your Bible. It's praying. It's being faithful at your labor and faithful to your children and faithful to mow your grass and and to drive on the right side of the road. All those things that you do, all those works, as you do them in faith, you glorify your Father. It matters tremendously. Ephesians 2.10 tells us that, that that these are the good works that He prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Right? So He calls us to work redemptively and to bring Him glory. Next, we learn, fifth, that he provides for us abundantly. And so we see this in the giving of the animals for food. Commentators are divided over whether this is an entirely new thing or if it's just being highlighted here. But either way, we see the Lord give us animals to eat, and that's a blessing. That's a good thing. He says, as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. There's a a richness and an expansiveness to God. He's not stingy, he gives generously, he gives open-handedly. Sixth, we learn that he is the Lord of life. The prohibition against eating meat with its blood in it is an obvious object lesson. The Bible repeatedly links blood to the life of the creature. Uh, So, for example, Leviticus 17 gives two verses that show us the importance of blood and its meaning. Uh, For the life of the flesh is in the blood And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. For the life of every creature is its blood, its blood is its life. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any creature, for the life of every creature is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. And so this prohibition against eating blood in Genesis 9 is setting the stage for the Old Testament sacrificial system. The link between blood and life would show the seriousness of sin as it requires death, it requires, it requires the shedding of blood for atonement to pay the price and to reconcile us to God. It also demonstrates the lordship of the creator over his creation. He is sovereign over all. All of life belongs to him. All of life exists by his design and for his glory. All creatures owe their existence to him, and therefore we owe him obedience and worship. We were created by him and for him, and and Revelation 4 makes this argument very, very clearly. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. The Lord reigns over all that he has made. He is the Lord of life. 
That also sets the stage for the seventh and final thing we find in these first seven verses. He is the God of justice. So we saw last week in the, in that, in the judgment of the flood as the Lord brought this severe and righteous judgment upon the earth. And we see it here again both in the reckoning that he requires for murder, for the death of any person, and in the means that he provides to accomplish that reckoning. Our God is the just God. In Deuteronomy 32, Moses tells us of the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Our God is always just. All that he does is just. He is the source of justice. And especially in our day, we should read the Bible with our eyes open to how God behaves. What does he love and what does he hate? What does he punish and what does he reward? Because he is always just. And we must learn what justice is from him and not from a confused world that is hell-bent on rejecting him and rebelling against him. So here the Lord establishes capital punishment as the just penalty for murder. And the principle is called the talion or sometimes the lex talionis. It's, it's the principle of proportionality. So eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life. The murderer who takes a life will have his life taken from him. And the reasoning is transparent. For God made man in his own image. So to murder a man is to murder the image of God. It's an attack upon God himself. Remember, one of the very clear symptoms that called for the flood, the reason that God sent the flood in Genesis 6 was that the earth was filled with violence. That reason is repeated in Genesis 6. The earth was filled with violence. And of course, the history of mankind demonstrates that again and again. Human history is filled with violence. This means that the supposedly enlightened and progressive moderns who demand the right to murder babies in the womb in the name of equality or freedom or progress are inviting the wrath of God on their very heads. Abortion is a great evil and the Lord will not overlook it. He can and does forgive those who turn to him in faith and repentance but to shed the blood of God's image bearers is a great evil. And it is to bring upon yourself fearsome condemnation. Capital punishment is the Lord's just penalty for murder. We also see his justice in how he orders that punishment to be executed. He says, by man shall his blood be shed. And this command applies both for the death of men and by men and by animals. And so if either an animal or a man murders a man, that man or animal is to be put to death by other men. This is one of the earliest evidences of the Lord establishing civil government on the earth. In Romans 13, Paul tells us that the civil authorities bear the sword. That's the phrase he uses. They have God-given authority to execute punishment. And this passage in Genesis 9 is part of the foundation for that. And so the Lord has established authorities upon the earth in part to be his agents of vengeance. Civil governments exist in part to punish evildoers. Of course, no earthly authority is perfect. 
But the Lord, in His Word, has kindly given us many clear instructions on justice. So things like jurisdiction and due process and impartiality and the presumption of innocence and the nature of witnesses and false accusations and all kinds of things. Scripture has far more to say about human justice than most people realize. And one of the great blessings of living in the modern West is the historical connection between our systems of justice, our our court system, and biblical truth. Even though, sadly, right now, many are seeking to undermine and, and dissolve that link, which is actually furthering the collapse of society. You see it all around our big cities today. That's a huge topic for another day. So in these seven truths about the Lord we see that he is the source of abundant, flourishing life. He is the God who blesses his people. He is the God who reveals himself. He speaks. He's the God whose purposes for creation still stand. He is the God who calls us to work redemptively. He's the God who provides for us abundantly. He's the God who is the Lord of life, and he is the God of justice. And the Lord has revealed all of this and more for us in his word. He, he speaks to us. He dis- discloses himself. He reveals himself. He provides wisdom to all who ask. In the Lord, we have this just delight-filled and overflowing fountain of life. We, we, we dare not read our limitations, our stinginess, our fickleness onto God. He is not like us. He is life itself and life in abundance. You'll remember the the lesson we learned when we went through the book of Proverbs. What does wisdom do? She lifts up her voice and she cries aloud in the streets. And what should we do in response? We should listen to the Lord to find life. That brings us to our second point. Enduring life under God's protection. So verse 8 begins with another clear announcement. Then God said to Noah and his sons. And again, we notice this is just like verse 1, that these four men are identified as the recipients of God's word. Now, in our egalitarian age, that, that seems to be a problem. It seems like the women are being left out. It seems unfair. But in the biblical view, to address these men is to address them and their wives and their children, if they have any. In speaking to Noah and his sons, the Lord is speaking to those who he's endowed with authority and responsibility and therefore accountability. He's speaking to the heads of households and and his instructions and his blessings and his commands apply through them to the entire household. And we should also note that Noah's sons aren't even named here, right? It's just Noah and he's the only one who's called by name. His sons are just the sons, Noah is the patriarch, he's the head of his family, and the promises of God are directed especially to him and then through him to everyone else. In these 10 verses, uh, we notice a significant change. Unlike the previous seven, here, no commands are given. Instead, this is God announcing an entirely gracious promise. The graciousness of the Noahic covenant is seen in at least three respects. First, it's universal. So it applies to every living creature without exception. Secondly, it is unilateral. So only God is active under this covenant. It's entirely about what he will do. And third, it is unconditional. The Lord does not require anything from us to receive the benefits of these promises. 
And those three aspects are also highlighted grammatically. Again and again, in these verses, we see first-person pronouns. And so the Lord says, I will establish a covenant, the covenant that I make. I have set my bow. I bring clouds. I will remember, and on and on. And just as the first seven verses were bookended by that command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, here this section is bookended by the promise that God will establish his covenant. That's verse 9 and verse 16. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He is the primary actor in accomplishing salvation. No one else could do it. No one else would do it. From first to last, this covenant is a very strong testimony to the truth that is repeated in Scripture again and again, which is that our God is the God who saves. In his love and mercy, he establishes this covenant to make clear his promise that he will not destroy the earth by the flood. And that he will ensure the survival of humanity until the last day. And so life in this age is life under that protective covenant, that protective promise, the protective hand of God. We also see that life-giving protective promise in the sign that the Lord chooses for this covenant. And so he tells Noah that he has set his bow in the clouds as a sign of the covenant. And that language of bow is part of the, the rich biblical imagery of God as the divine warrior. And we see that in passages like Exodus 15 and Isaiah 42. So the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He steals up his, stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. So the Lord is the divine warrior, and the bow is the weapon of his warfare. Psalm 7 contains an even more frightening picture. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Especially when we consider that this promise of this covenant is being made, it's happening immediately after the devastating worldwide destruction of the flood. We can begin to appreciate the magnitude of what this moment represents. The Lord is the divine warrior. The bow is his weapon of warfare. It's a weapon of judgment. And he is hanging up his bow in the heavens in an act of mercy. And it reminds us of what Sinclair Ferguson says, which is that, uh, that mercy is the only quality of which God says he is rich. It's Ephesians 2.4. He is rich in mercy. So he hangs his divine bow in the clouds and it faces upward in peace, not downward in threat over the earth. This should highlight for us the, the utter arrogance and foolishness of those who would take the rainbow and make it a symbol of sexual rebellion. I find that we have to be intentional as Christians to see the rainbow for what it is, which is what God says it is not for what our culture is trying to twist it to be. The rainbow is a beautiful and enduring sign and seal of God's incredible mercy upon the earth. Those who would try to use it to symbolize their independence from and their rebellion against God are inviting his judgment upon their heads to take his covenant seal of mercy 
and to twist it is wicked and wanton, and the Lord will not be mocked. When I see the, the rainbow flag of the gay pride movement, I think, do they not fear the Lord at all? And especially, especially when you see it outside a church, to take the Lord's seal of mercy and to use it to basically give God the middle finger is to beg for God's judgment. And the Lord will not be mocked. His judgment will come. There's one final aspect of this covenant with Noah that we need to note. The Lord makes a promise in verse 16. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. Again, we find the language that we saw last week in Genesis 8-1 where the Lord remembered Noah. And I'm going to highlight again that quote from Derek Kidner on this language because it's so good, it's so helpful. When the Old Testament says that God remembered, it combines the ideas of faithful love and timely intervention. So the Lord promises to look down upon the earth, to look upon his bow with faithful love and timely intervention. He's not the God who is far off. He's not the God who can, cannot be pleased. He's not going to ruin the earth with the flood. He is the God who is rich in mercy and great in love. He is the God who is even now preserving the earth even amidst the wickedness of human rebellion and he will continue to preserve it. So here's the question. Are we listening? Do we hear and appreciate the love and mercy that are continuously being poured out, being held out to us by our gracious God? That verb to listen is very helpful because it highlights what makes Christianity gracious. And this passage demonstrates that as well. There, there are commands to be sure. The, the Lord calls us to obey him. He calls us to work. But, but as we saw last week, faith precedes obedience. Faith comes before obedience. And that verb, listen, highlights that. The graciousness of Christianity is captured in the term gospel. And as you know, the term gospel means good news. It's something that's announced to us. That good news is that Jesus has done everything necessary to redeem and reconcile fallen man, sinful man, to God. Now, it, it makes all the difference in the world how we listen to that message, how it, how it lands on us. If we listen to it as the announcement of a program that we must then go out and perform, demonstrating by our commitment and our exertion that we are good disciples, then we're turning the grace of God into legalism and self-righteousness. That kind of listening is discouraging and exhausting. And if you hear the commands of God, whether it's this morning or if you're reading the Bible or otherwise hearing it, and you find yourself discouraged and exhausted, it's because you're trying to carry out the program yourself. You're trying to earn your way to God. You find the commands of God exhausting and discouraging. I'll ask John to come up. But if we listen well, if we listen rightly, if we recognize in this covenant this consistent biblical pattern that salvation belongs to the Lord, 
and that he is the one who does all that is needed for us to be saved, then we don't hear a program or a to-do list. Instead, we see the person. We see the Lord Jesus who has lived and died and risen again to fulfill all righteousness, whose blood was shed for the remission of sins, his spotless life offered as the record of righteousness to all who trust in him. And so we see him and we listen to him and we put our hope in him, our trust in him, our confidence in him. And as we do, as we come to him, we find peace and rest. We find pardon and righteousness. It's Jesus who told us, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus Christ offers his abundant life to all who ask. And, and, and don't be mistaken, that this is both for the moment of initial belief, when you first trust in Christ, and for every subsequent moment of your life. We are saved by grace, and we are sustained by grace. The primary reason that the Father promised in this covenant to preserve human life was so that the seed of the woman could carry forward generation by generation until that promise was realized in the person of his son who was sent to earth to rescue and redeem his enemies. And that is the grace that he holds out to us this morning. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So no matter your struggle this morning, whether you're discouraged and exhausted, maybe you're just overwhelmed by the reality of your sin. Maybe you feel, maybe you feel like an old carpenter's hand that's so calloused that nothing seems to pierce it. Nothing seems to affect it. You need to hear the words of your Savior. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You can look a million other places, and there are a million other places to look, especially in our world. But nowhere else will you find rest. Nowhere else will you have confidence that your sins are forgiven. Nowhere else will you know that you can stand before God, righteous and not condemned, welcomed and not turned away, because you stand in Christ that is the message that is being proclaimed to you. That's, that's what the promise to Noah did. It, it preserved the earth so that the Father could send the Son to save His people. And so He calls us to listen to Him. To listen, not to, not to earn, not to accomplish, to listen and receive the grace that Jesus won for us. So no matter your struggle, listen to the Savior. Because as we listen to the Lord, we find life. For more information, head to our website at crosswaypa.org.